one of the most undervalued terms, frankly, in, in business today is empathy. You know, a lot of people are always talking about the data and insights and big data and getting these data scientists in, and it's all very valuable stuff. But empathy at the end of the day is where you connect with someone on a human level and an individual, back to that emotional heartstrings. It's less rational about, here's the logic, whatever. It gets to the why behind every decision. So it starts with really taking the time to talk and understand, both from a consumer standpoint, you know, having that empathy, but also internally. From Qualtrics Studios, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. Hey, it's Jesse. What are some brands that come to mind when you think about growth, innovation, and disruption? Sure, you could answer Google or Tesla or Spotify, and well, you'd be right. But before software started eating the world, we people, well, we were eating and drinking, food and drink. And perhaps no food and drink company has reinvented itself so expertly over the years or refined and extended its brand to be more vibrant, more culturally relevant, and more inclusive as has Pepsi. To find out how, I wanted to talk to the guy who looks after the brand in the blue can, Todd Kaplan, head of all marketing for PepsiCo's US cola business. Todd's one of those people who's seemingly seen and done it all. The things he and his teams have done, whether it's Super Bowl halftime shows, launches of craft soda brands, or iconic partnerships with Major League Baseball, they read like a hall of fame of breakthrough experiences. And far from just getting into a groove and cruising, Todd has continually worked to skill build and drive impact in different ways within PepsiCo over the years. He's embraced all kinds of roles in his 16 years there, from turnaround specialist to category creator to experience builder, and he's learned some incredible lessons along the way that he shared with me in our conversation. Todd and I talked about that career arc and how to keep getting diverse experiences in a single company, how to dream big and execute it to bring it to life, the valuable and exciting intersections between brand and experience, the importance of harnessing deep customer empathy in business decision-making, and the accomplishments that Todd is personally most proud of. We started out talking about his history as a California kid who made his way to the East Coast. I'm assuming you're a SoCal guy, or you have an even better story for why you're a Lakers fan, but how does a SoCal guy get into the New York ecosystem and then make it home forever? That's a, a good a good question. I, I am a SoCal guy and a Lakers fan because of that as a SoCal guy. But yeah, I, I came out east for business school. I met my wife while I was in between my first and second year, actually when I was interning at Pepsi. And then, um, you know, she's from out here and then I got a job out here and I blinked and now it's many years later and I'm still here. You know, you've been stewarding and growing one of the most recognizable and iconic brands on the planet for almost 16 years. What have you come to love or appreciate that maybe you didn't see coming? I think it's just the impact that this company and these brands have on people's day-to-day -day lives. You know, for me, what's really exciting is the brands that we have at PepsiCo not only are in every household, but they're part of people's daily lives and they connect on a more emotional, deeper level as of the role of the brands and sports and music and entertainment and just culture. I think, you know, I'm a big... Uh, culture junkie. And so uh, all that stuff's really interesting. So, And 
Tell me about getting into sports marketing earlier in your career. I know it's tricky to get into sports marketing, especially early on, before you got a lot of bona fides in 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 a resume. Like, what steps did you take to be able to land that gig when you did? It's such a good question because you know, um, listen, I've always been a sports fan, and, and sports marketing wasn't even really a field or an industry back then. You know, I mean, obviously it existed, but it wasn't as it wasn't like schools and programs and things, you know, and I think when Jerry Maguire came out was the first time people actually started even talking about it. But um, when I was in college, I interned at the U.S. Olympic Committee over the summer. I lived out in Colorado Springs at their training center and interned there. And then I did a marketing field studies program for a semester at college where I uh, literally didn't go to school, but just interned in Chicago at Fox Sports Net Chicago at the time. And so uh, that was the local cable affiliate there. Learned a lot, and I was even at the Michael Jordan retirement press conference, did a whole bunch of really cool stuff while I was there, and uh, had a sports business radio show with my friend uh, Darren Ravel, who went on to ESPN and doing stuff. And um, for my job, you know, when you're coming out of college, you want to get a job and you want to get it right. And there was no real way. Again, this was still also early internet days, weren't as developed in a lot of those things, too. So I literally mailed 500 letters, physical letters, to every sports team, league, property, media partner, agency out there. I will tell you, as a Cali kid out in Chicago, I was freezing. (laughs) So I wanted to get back out west. So uh, I moved out to San Francisco and found a company called Millsport where I could lead their Olympic Games and global sports sponsorships. And that's kind of how it all started. So you land in San Francisco. I presume that had something to do with how you got attached to the, the visa account. Yep. And, you know, Olympic sponsor, Rugby World Cup, NFL. As you look back on it now, what was the specific value of being able to work early in your career on an account with that kind of ambition and imagination and, and brand clarity? It was really cool. And listen, I was fresh out of college and I was actually working in-house with my clients. So I was the agency but I was based at Visa's global headquarters. And I was working on a global capacity, you know, talking to people all around the world and all their different operating regions and with some of the biggest properties, the Olympic Games and the Rugby World Cup and NFL International. And I would advise them on everything from sponsorship renewal to build the brand activation plans. And I led a couple of these Olympian reunion centers at the Olympics in Salt Lake City in 2002 and in Athens in 2004. And um But it was really cool sitting in-house. A lot of the people on my client's side, they were pretty senior. They were all directors, senior directors, VPs, even SVPs at the time. And I became close friends with them and really just through observing, got to see a lot about how business worked, how the industry worked, and got to really start my chops. Was there any specific moment or any specific experience that you had, whether it was at a certain game where you were sponsoring, whether it was in a certain meeting with a certain team where you said, this is kind of a magical alchemy of, I got sport, I got brand, I got experience, I got culture. These things, were they starting to swim in your head at that point in your career or still still too early? No, it was starting to to get there early because like even just um, I had never been to an Olympic Games before. Right. And so when you're there in Salt Lake City, I remember I had to go to I lived in Athens for a month when the Olympics were there. And that was a whole thing leading to this thing called the Visa Olympians Reunion Center, where they bring all the past Olympians from previous games together and help give them tools to find jobs and things like that. But it was just really when you see the grandness of any Olympic Games and the world coming together and knowing that you're a part of it and you're connecting to all these people and helping, you know, also while you're building a brand and building activation around it, it uh, it's pretty cool, especially when you're like 22-year-old kid out of college or something or, you know, and it's fun too, you know, all that stuff. So it was a blast. 
So how'd you find your way to PepsiCo? It's a good segue. Well, actually through business school itself. So one of the things when I was there, I also learned is saying, hey, this sports industry is really, really cool. And I love it. I have a lot of passion for it. But uh, it also is very narrow. And as I could see, you know, with a lot of the senior leaders that there's, hey, there's a role and a place, but then you can kind of hit a cap. And I wanted to have some more broad business visibility to marketing and I think of my passion and creativity, what I could bring. So I went back to business school. I came out east at Yale where I got my MBA. And that's actually the in between my first and second years where I met my my wife that summer as I do. And um, when I was there, Indra Nui, who was the CEO of PepsiCo, who also had gone to Yale for business school, was speaking on campus, doing a big leadership forum. And I'd always kind of admired Pepsi a little bit as just a great marketer and like I said, the role in culture and sports and music and all that stuff. So after she was done presenting, I went up to her and said, hey, you know, I was like, hey, how's it going? I'm a student here. Do you recruit for marketing? And of course she had no idea, but behind her was Dave Berwick, who was the CMO at the time. So she turned around to Dave and is like, hey, do we recruit here for marketing? He goes, yep. Even though they didn't, <laughs> he said, yep. And they came back and they interviewed me as one of the candidates and I got the job and got an internship. I uh, had a great internship experience and then I was hired. So your first role at PepsiCo, 06, 07, you're leading out on the creation of a branded entertainment center of excellence. A branded entertainment center of excellence. Now, this is pre-social medias, pre-iPhone. If, if I said that phrase in 2016, 2017, everyone was, oh, of course, you know, you know, branded entertainment center. But back in the day, you're doing that stuff before any of us even have that vernacular. So talk about that vision and kind of maybe creating what became the future. Yeah, totally. This was way before the trend. And um, I'll point out all of my roles at PepsiCo as well. They all have that, like I said, that entrepreneurial kind of almost like startup vibe of creating and building something, whether it's new big brands like creating bubbly and life water on the water business or starting a new thing, brand and entertainment, everything in between. And so this first role, I was hired by John Galloway, who was my um, he was my boss over the summer as an intern. He had led our sports group at Pepsi. But he also then ended up leading the media team and digital team at the time. And they had to figure out, like, there's something else we can be doing here and how we can integrate it in the space, not just paid media. And so I had to really craft the vision, the strategy, and really build a whole center of excellence around what's our point of view on product placement in TV and film, for building proprietary content, what is brand entertainment, bring all the stakeholders, senior leadership, talking to how are we going to interface with the movie studios out West, all that stuff. And now, actually, reflecting back, it's laid a lot of the foundation, frankly, for stuff I'm even now realizing I'm doing today. You know, this past year, we created a primetime game show on Fox. We created a reality dating show on MTV. We built a documentary on Showtime. I mean, branded content is still alive and well, but, you know, it's kind of interesting now that we're leading the forefront and doing a lot of really fun stuff in that domain as well. Yeah, you've gotten to build some spectacularly cool and widely viewed experiences of brand activations. You know, you mentioned a few there. I, I think about inaugurating the Pepsi halftime show at the Super Bowl. I think about Pepsi Max, Field of Dreams. Yeah. Take me behind the scenes for some of those iconic moments. Like what what would surprise people to know about what it takes to pull something like that off? Well, I'd say... Anybody who's planned any event or activation or anything at this level of scale, it is a whole different level of just detail and logistics and people and all that stuff. We have to leave it all on the field tonight. 
and then it's Sunday. But it's interesting. You mentioned an interesting project, the Pepsi Max Field of Dreams program. It's so funny. I haven't heard that one in, in years. And that was when I was still pretty junior on the sports team at PepsiCo. I was probably like a senior manager at the time. And one of the things that I shared earlier that I love about Pepsi is that you can turn your big, crazy dreams into a reality. And that's kind of been my calling card is as a creative person coming up with some crazy idea, running around the building and saying, who's coming with me? <laughs> you know, like, how, how can we get the money to do this? This is why it's so cool. And so at the time, we had just launched uh, Pepsi Max, which is our zero-calorie cola, and had launched a piece of creative around uh, that was themed around Field of Dreams with this uh, Pepsi Max driver was in a field with all these baseball players, and it was a kind of fun piece of TV creative. And so, again, I was leading our NFL and Major League Baseball partnerships at the time. And, you know, there's this insight around baseball that people always debate around who is the best living legend at each position, who was the best pitcher of all time, who was the best first baseman, who was the best whatever. And again, everything also I'm now realizing as I'm reflecting back as a calling card, everything I always do starts with a consumer truth or insight. And so this is kind of one just around the sports and um, so I had this idea to create the first ever activation where basically we had people go online and vote for who was their favorite living legend at each position, first base, catcher, second base, et cetera. And one lucky person who filled out this form would be a winner. And we would bring all 10 of the living legends to their hometown to play a game of baseball against them and their 10 closest friends. So it ended up being this guy, Tim Wisecup, who was this like 41-year-old chemist in Columbus, Ohio, with all his friends. And we brought Johnny Bench, Reggie Jackson, Wade Boggs, Dave Winfield, Ricky Henderson, Pedro Martinez, Frank Tom. I mean, the list goes on and on. It was, this, this, I think, the second largest gathering of Hall of Famers ever in history to this guy's hometown. And we built in their minor league ballpark. We built cornfields in the back. We had a whole thing. We televised it on ESPN. We sold tickets to 30,000 people of this thing. And again, this was just me as some guy on the, the sports team with a random idea. And then to turn that into reality, to your point, the logistics of how do we sell the tickets? Who's doing it? How do we get the broadcast? How do you sign the athletes? How do they show up? How do we do Like, there's logistics in spades there. But as you go from the big marketing PR buzz and everything that it drove all the way to all the logistics. It was uh, just one example of like any crazy ideas possible at Pepsi. And I've kind of taken that through as we think about halftime show, NFL, you know, every, everything in between. And Todd, how do you, or do you tether the, the crazy to the practical? Like, do you have to have those conversations with leadership around, no, 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 here's the kind of impact we're, we're talking about, or is the blueprint at this point so kind of well stamped and established that you just know that when you make these kind of big, bold brand moves or put incredible experiences like that into the world, it, it, it just pays off in ways that are immeasurable. There's a whole bunch. And I'll say the business is critically important to us as well, you know, and so we don't just do fun, crazy things, even though we like to talk about them right now as we're talking here. I currently oversee all the business side of Pepsi as well, right? From building the innovation and the strategy and the insights all the way into our commercial plans with Walmart and Target and 7-Eleven and everything in between. And we've generated 13 straight quarters of growth on Pepsi now uh, after this is after decades of decline. But I think to your point on where does the equity measures really connect to it, as you think about our category, we're a high penetration category, you know, and very high awareness too. When people come present me stuff and they say, presented by Pepsi, I'm like, not interested because frankly, who, who hasn't heard of Pepsi? We have very high household awareness. It's more about relevance and what are the real drivers that are really going to make a difference in a low involvement category where it costs 
a buck 29 for a, a 20 ounce or something. This isn't like you're debating on which iPhone to get or which diamond ring to buy. It's a, it's an impulse decision, which gets down to this emotional equity driving level and the role that it plays in really helping add that topspin. And when you can um, connect it all the way through to retail activation, and other things is where you really get this and innovation and new products and categories that we come out with as well uh, is where you really get the full business growth. And so from the outside in as a brand guy, I think of words like youthful and vibrant and eclectic and diverse and engaging and kinetic when I think about PepsiCo. But what's in that constellation for you as you try to get to relevance that's, you know, not just different from the other guy or a little better than, you know, this other player, but but actually kind of getting to that category of one where you're like, well, we could kind of do anything. One of the things that really helped get the brand back on track during this turnaround these last few years is we repositioned the brand and really sharpened what the brand stands for. And so a lot of those words you bring up, youthfulness, exuberance, joy are spot on, but I would say you need to be distinctive as a brand and have a distinct point of view. What we learned about our Pepsi consumers is that they like to enjoy life, what we call unapologetically, which means, hey, it's maybe it's eating that extra piece of cheesecake or going skinny dipping on a random day or going karaoke with friends or clapping at the end of a movie, you know, having that little impulse to just do that extra, that little bit extra experience, if you will, even if you might be judged for it. Maybe drinking a Pepsi, someone's gonna judge you for doing that as well. Unapologetic enjoyment has really been a core ethos of our brand these past years from everything from coming up with innovation, like you can see behind me, the uh, Pepsi Peeps, which is a marshmallow flavored cola we've made all the way to, um, you know, some of the executions we've done around better with Pepsi and these burgers and everything in between. So uh, really maintaining that distinctive point of view is critical. For many years, there was this thought about you got to have disruption from the outside or, you know, only the newly minted companies will actually force disruption or they'll build technology for disruption. And then the pendulum kind of swung back. It's like, no, no, actually, the innovators are the ones that can do the disruption because they have that mechanism you're talking about. But even if they have the mechanism, they might not always have the mindset that somebody like you brings where it's like, no, no, it's okay to break the glass. We might fumble through it a little bit, but like, let's go. We got to do something different. You're, you're totally right. I, I go back to my experience when I was leading our water portfolio, where uh, we had Aquafina for a number of years as a leader in the, his category, but the category around was growing gangbusters, sparkling water, premium water, all this kind of, I mean, it still is going crazy today. It's a huge growth thing. And we were not, as a big company, getting our fair share. And um, for years, we dabbled in, you know, hey, should we buy another sparkling water company? Should we start another one? Should we, and literally, I created a couple brands, Bubbly Sparkling Water, which now is going to be one of our next billion dollar brands in that space. I started Life Water, which is our premium water, which started with an inside of the art on the label on the outside to really help cut through and, and connect with kind of creative, uh, purpose-driven brand stuff. And so it's not always just, hey, big companies either acquire or, you know, you can build from within and innovate. And we we quickly, overnight, we were driving the, the growth in the category for water, which was one of the fastest growing categories. Yeah, you mentioned purpose in the narrative there about Bubbly, whether it's that brand or whether it's any of the other brands in, in the portfolio. How have you taken a, a, a hard look at the connection to not just emotional relationships with consumers, but really declaring that point of view, declaring that purpose. And you know, what, what role does that play in how you go to market? 
Yeah, I mean, that's frankly the future of branding. I think a lot of people where they screw up on purpose or brands is um, they think of it as, oh, well, you need to be a part of a cause and you need to just help, you know, heal the world. And, and what you need to really answer is it's, it comes down to, frankly, a self-awareness exercise of do you know who the hell your brand even is? It's back to that Simon Sinek of why do you exist as a brand, right? And the golden circle kind of stuff is a starting point. And then once you understand your point of view as a brand, then you'd say, okay, what is our people impact and what is our planet impact? We have this thing called Pep Positive where we're really focused on that. And so as you think about what is a brand like Pepsi's point of view on sustainability? Sustainability has typically been something done at the corporate level and we do a ton of really great stuff as PepsiCo, but as a brand, our brand point of view, you know, we just launched this program called Pepsi Trash Talk, where there's this insight around sports people talking trash to one another is an endemic part of sports. And one of the barriers to recycling is no one knows what the hell to recycle. It's I go, there's five trash cans. I don't know what goes where. Do I put the cap in? And so we're using that now as a platform to educate consumers in a Pepsi way, a fun way to kind of talk about Pepsi Trash Talk and talk about recycling with Deion Sanders and all these kind of famous trash talkers and stuff. So just one example. Love that. You also mentioned at the top customer centricity related to empathy, right? Customer empathy. Um, and as you reflect on getting from a turnaround situation into a growth situation, talk to me if you would about the role that empathy whether it's for employees and what they want to do with their careers or customers and what they're trying to do with their lives has played to kind of right those wrongs in the business. Yeah, I think it's one of the most undervalued terms, frankly, in, in business today is empathy. You know, a lot of people are always talking about the data and insights and big data and getting these data scientists in. And it's all very valuable stuff. But empathy at the end of the day is where you connect with someone on a human level and an individual, back to that emotional heartstrings. It's less rational about, here's the logic, whatever. It gets to the why behind every decision. I can look at sales data, data from a survey, whatever it is that says X percent of people think this, Y percent this. If I don't know the context or the why, um, that's how it is. So it starts with really taking the time to talk and understand both from a consumer standpoint, you know, having that empathy, but also internally to that point, especially I'd look at these last two years, as you think about team building through a pandemic, how everyone's experiencing it differently. I have people on my team who are trapped in a studio apartment by themselves with no human interaction. I have people who are juggling two working spouses and kids and whatever, and, and trying to deal with Zooms. And I have people who have, you know, ailments and family members and so, you need to be empathetic to everyone's situation as, as you go through it together, which really helps. And Todd, give me an example of an experience that you've put into the world for an audience where you'd say, I am so glad that we channeled the, the degree of empathy that we did. What change was made to an existing plan or what net new thing was created where you're like, if we hadn't been deeply listening around the why, we would not have gotten to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go back to my time on water. I think both those brands, Life Water and Bubbly, which are the two most successful innovation launches we had had at PepsiCo, both back to back, really, they were all born from real human insights. It's very easy to just kind of take the shortcut and say, hey, R&D team, let's make a sparkling water. Let's get these flavors. Let's do what they're doing. Boom, boom, boom. We can package it. We can sell it. It's not sustainable. What's made those businesses really sustain is they're built on human truths. Life water and bubbly, for example. But life water is um, 
These one liter bottles, people carry them around with them all day. It's less even about the water inside. It's more an accessory and a badge of like, you're drinking it in public. People see what it is. And so when you look at this idea of art and inspiration, we know a lot of millennials who were looking to drink premium water at the time also really care about purpose and creativity. And so we said, what if we built a water brand that supported the arts? When you go into a bodega and you see a radical piece of art on something that you're gonna purchase, it's a cool part of your day. There's multi-levels of inspiration there, whether it's through hydration or the experience of picking up the bottle. It offers a, a visual aspect that is definitely inspiring. And we built Life Water and put the art on the label, making it a cool badge that would change, you know, and all of that. With Bubbly, basically what people wanted was the permissibility of a sparkling water, but the fun of a soda. And, um, you know, LaCroix and some of these other things had kind of accidentally fallen into that space. And we said, well, what if we built a brand with playfulness from the ground up? And so we put all these fun sayings on the tabs and the bright colors and the smiles and built this kind of visual identity. And, you know, we launched it only talking in gifts, you know, and, and just a lot of really fun things. So it really comes down to starting with that real uh, insight. What role do you think strong brands with a cultural currency and maybe a social influence or authority like like Pepsi has come to have? What obligation do brands like that have to reflect a, a diverse society and, and the various kinds of beliefs and values that, that we might all have? I think it's paramount at the end of the day. The tricky thing is you obviously get to a a scaled brand like Pepsi is there's a lot of different cohorts that will consume you or, or participate with you. But I think you need to clearly take a stand for, for what you believe in as a brand and as a company and all that. We've done a lot, as you think about this space around social injustice, for example, we've done a number of programs from uh, something around supporting Black-owned restaurants. This program we have called Pepsi Dig In, which is really an effort to help promote and engage with Black-owned restaurants and, and really support them, which again is back within the lane of our product and have a lot of employee groups internally that we do quite a bit of activity with within our team and also just across the company. So it's a critical component for us, I think, as a brand and, and as a company. Yeah. You know, Todd, they have those books, like what they don't teach you at HBS or the kind of, what do you really, really need to know? If, if you're sitting down with the next Todd Kaplan or the next kid who walks up to Indonui at Yale and you kind of pull them aside and say, you know, let, let me give you two or three chits of advice. What are you telling that young person who's getting started that maybe took you some time to know or discover? Yeah, I'd say a couple things. And this is one I think I innately live and breathe, but I've learned that everybody else does not. And I've now tried to figure out how to teach it on my teams as well. And it's this idea of uh, take no as a request for more information. There's some idea of persistence that the best creative ideas often die two or three times before they at least even get to see the light of day. And I can give you millions of examples of that, but especially in a big company, there's always gonna be a reason not to. We have our legal teams, we have supply chain constraints, we have a cost budget, we have a this, we have timing constraints. But if you have the right idea, don't futz it up just because of those other things, like really try to understand and often with the right creative problem solving and persistence. If there's a will, there's a way, and you can influence and figure out, maybe you have to reshape something, an element that still keeps the core idea intact, but gets it to the next phase over the finish line. And so that's something that I would say that just this idea of persistence and taking no as a request for information, because the best ideas 
often usually start with some sort of no. The other thing I would say that I've said to a lot of folks on my team as well is we do this exercise, I say, write your resume in reverse. So whenever you start a new role to say like, hey, this role, if I think back, when I leave the Pepsi team, what would I say would be successful? Well, I've returned the business to growth of whatever, I've fixed the equity around, blah, 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 blah. You know, what are the two or three things? When everyone goes and recounts their career, you tell the two to three stories per role and you go to the next one and like, I'm sure there was a whole lot beyond that inside that role that people did, meetings, projects, important things, but get to early on, what are those critical projects? And spend most of your time on that. Spend, make sure you spend like 70% of your time really focusing on that stuff and not getting sucked into the day-to-day minutia. So I think those are just two elements that I think can be uh, helpful. Todd, as you talk, I'm just so struck by the diversity of the stuff that you've gotten to have your hands on and help create, creating an insights team, turning around parts of the business, putting number one water brands into the world, these incredible experiences at the Super Bowl and on and on and on. Beyond the fact that it's an accomplished list, it's just a very diverse list. Like it's almost hard to believe (laughs) if you'd say one person had a, you know, a hand on the pen for all of these things. Talk to me about the lateral thinking capability that you've had to grow, that you've had to deploy into these roles and just how somebody looking, you know, 10, 15 years ahead to do that future resume writing, for example, that you talked about. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, I keep thinking to myself like, well, was I in the right role at the right time? Or is it, hey, the consistent thing is I was in every one of those roles. And as I reflected on it, it's kind of like, well, what am I bringing to this as well? And as, as I'm trying to articulate that, One thing I've told people who've asked me something similar is you make the role, the role doesn't make you. And so it's almost this idea as seeing the world as it is, not how it's presented to you. So every time you start a new job or a new role, there will have been some predecessor before you. Your boss will say, this is what the role's job description is. And you definitely want to appreciate what they've done before, what the need is now, what your boss is telling you. But to your point on that periphery, horizontal vision of like, all right, but let's like, let's be honest. I'm here in this role and wow, what if we did this? And what if we did that? That creative kind of juice comes in and you could then come up with some new areas to say, hey, you know what? In addition to this, what if we actually looked at broadening this role to really do whatever? You know, when I went into food service, my, my team started as 12 people. And by the time I was done, it was like 32 people. It was, it was like in, we'd grown to global and insights and equipment and all this stuff. And just as you learn the art of internal selling and and creating your own destiny in some of these things. Anything is possible. And so I I tell people all the time, sometimes the roles people don't want as well are the most exciting ones. There's opportunity everywhere to build and create. All right. I want to shift us to a a lightning round here. Just uh, first kind of top of mind response on some of these, if that's all right. right. You ready? All right. All right. right. Lightning round. Let's do it. Okay. So give me a brand and it, it, it can't be the Los Angeles Lakers and it can't be Pepsi or any of the brands in your portfolio. Give me a brand you admire, one that you personally can't imagine living without. I will say Nike. I'm a total sneakerhead and a huge Nike fan. I just love culturally what they've been able to do. I love performance-wise what they've been able to do and just they've been very consistent across the board, just done great stuff. So I'd say Nike. And who's your favorite Laker or favorite Laker team of all time, knowing all that you've got to choose from? Yeah, I'd say um, Kobe. 
Um, and that might be an unpopular choice, but I really admire his mentality and his work ethic. And just, I think just seeing his athletic prowess is amazing. And so I think the Shaq Kobe years were probably even more than kind of the, the Magic Kramer and the current LeBron and, you know, everything now I'd say um, Kobe for sure though. Who is one person that has had an unbelievable amount of influence on you in maybe a way you did not expect that they would? I'd actually probably say my dad. It's one of those things as you get older and you have kids yourself like I do now and, you know, you have a new appreciation for kind of what your folks did raising you. You know, my dad, he was a pediatrician. Uh, he still is a pediatrician living out in California and has instilled a lot of like really great, I'd say, leadership lessons, but even just seeing how he approaches his day to day and I think across the board really set a good foundation for for someone to emulate and uh, to really uh, connect with. So uh, I'd say my dad. And Todd, what's your secret sauce? You know, you said earlier that you make the role, the role doesn't make you. You got to have some commitment to a secret sauce, that that thing that just makes you you. What What is that for Todd? Yeah, the secret sauce, I mean, I approach everything from a lens of passion. So whether it's my job, whether it's going out with friends and having a banger of a night or doing whatever, you know, like if I'm gonna uh, build something with my kids, we're building a freaking crazy Lego tower city. So it's this idea of just going all in, doing it kind of from a place of passion and interest is, uh, is I'd say a consistent theme. Well, Todd, I'm grateful for the conversation, the perspective all the time and input. So thank you so much for spending your afternoon and, and, and big part of your day here with us. Um, good. Very grateful. And we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot. Now, listen up. We're taking it back right now to 1997, baby. Being the notorious B.I.G. Freestyling in the studio. Let's go. Big slam, quick slam, ten kill, uh, whatever. Uh, Whether too cold or too hot, you got the cute Pepsi in the freezer. Uh, I keep a three liter for my crew. Uh, my girl like them dye drinks too. Uh, Other sodas taste the worst. I don't even converse if you can't quench my thirst. What you in my fridge for? What you on the lift for? Life with the dry mouth, hot like the style. Flash out to twelve ounce and renounce. Nothing can beat the P E P S I. Yes I. Drinking constantly. Uh-uh. Thanks for listening to Breakthrough Builders. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review and tell a friend about the show. Breakthrough Builders is a Qualtrics Studios original hosted and executive produced by me, Jesse Pierwall. An awesome team of people puts this show together, including our show writer, Todd Bagnall, the folks from Studio Pod Media in San Francisco and Vayner Talent in New York. From Studio Pod Media, our executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. Producer is Sterling Shore. Editing and music is by Ryan Crowther. And our show coordinator is Kayla Sowell. From Vayner Talent, publicity and promotion support come from Samantha Heaps, Hannah Park, Lindsay Blum, and Ivana Lynn. The show's designers are Baron Santiago and Vensuka Shindavajak. Our website's by Gregory Haydon, and photography is by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Ben Hawken, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin. Before we break the Pepsi.